Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey. Nom, 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 nom. Web Cookie Monster, not Grinder. <laughs> and that probably just nom, destroyed nom. someone's eardrum. Uh, on today's Sorry, episode, Cody. Good luck editing that. <laughs> we will be discussing Operation Cookie Monster, uh, Microsoft's recent takedown attempts at a popular hacking tool, and then ending with a really fun story about the latest way to steal a car. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and drive our way in. So let's start with our first story of the day, uh, where the UK National Crime Agency, or NCA, the uh, British equivalent of the FBI, announced last Wednesday that in kinda. coordination with other... Kind of? Are they a little different? I wasn't sure if the NCSC would be the equivalent of the FBI and the NCA might just be. I, who knows? Who, I, I actually didn't look into it. Who knows? I'm just curious Nobody how the knows. NCSC is attached to the NCA. People in UK, experts there probably know very, very well. Either I'm way, one of the, the big authorities. For this one. <laughs> the big authorities <laughs> there. I'm sure NCA is yes. tied to uh, NCSC as well. Well. Last Wednesday, they announced in coordination with other international law enforcement agencies like the FBI, uh, they had seized the dark web marketplace called Genesis Market and arrested many of the forum's users. So Genesis Market, it first came online like 2018. I think it came into like our uh, view in somewhere in like 2019 or so. I remember doing a podcast on it, talking about this really interesting new um, niche marketplace that just came online or to popularity. Uh, so Genesis Market had focused entirely around selling authenticated session material like credentials, but more interestingly, full on like authenticated sessions themselves and the ability to maintain those like in perpetuality. Basically, it was fueled by malware that would get installed on victims' machines that would sit there and steal information out of the victims' web browsers. Uh, not just like their authenticated session cookies, but the entirety of the items that could make a browser fingerprint itself. So I and guess an example, very... when I go... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Finish. Sorry. Oh, well, when I... Jeez, uh, Corey, let me finish. Come on. Uh, when, <laughs> when I go to a... When you go to a website, uh, they tend to track like the fingerprint of your browser, as it's called, using a few different things, like the user agent header, which will tell it what version your browser is running, what plugins you have enabled, uh, what operating system you're on, and a few other things as well, too. And if that fingerprint were to change mid-session on some uh, websites, they may force you to re-authenticate, as an example. So sometimes stealing a session cookie itself isn't necessarily enough to take over a user's account. Yeah, and I love uh, sites and, like those, Mark, because uh, I, I think that's a very powerful behavioral analytic to add to high, you know, high value websites. You show all the time attacker in the middle demos. I think you just showed it at the partner conference you and I were both at, but you've had webinar or internal webinars at least. And maybe we'll release that video where you show how easy it can be to trick a user into 
giving up a session cookie. I think you're you show an attacker in the middle where you have to get someone to uh, go to a, a website that you control, but you're able to get that session cookie quickly. And just I'm sure ever, everyone knows, but it's typically a MFA bypass. Not that anything was wrong with the MFA, but via social engineering, if the victim thinks the website's appropriate and does a legitimate MFA login, that session cookie gets them in and it's good for as long as the session token, you know, is good for however long it is set to expire. But as you said, I love these sites that have the extra ability to pay close attention to the details of not just the agent header, but I think they're able to see operating system, all the stuff that's part of that browser fingerprint, all the additional detail that it's not just the cookie, but this is the computer I've seen this legit user log in from. I think that's very helpful in, in bypassing session hijacking. But as you point out, when people actually have malware on your system, they can get all that additional detail uh, too. And even as you change and use different browsers, they can keep it updated. So uh, when we talked about this, it's pretty scary that they have this kind of continuous cookie stealing malware as one of their main services. So instead of just selling like a username and password, which they did also sell on the side, their main product was basically like a browser extension that you as the attacker can install on your web browser uh, that has like plugins that you can purchase from the website. And that plugin will include authenticated session cookies that are continuously refreshed. Anytime they change on the victim's machine, that malware will grab it and then feed it back ultimately into your plugin. And it also will modify your browser's fingerprint, its signature, to look just like that victim's browser as well, too. Um, so that you as the adversary can continue piggybacking off of that victim's session as it changes over time and potentially not trick or trip up the websites into realizing that, oh, this is coming from a different location. Like, I guess if they're looking at IP address, you might, you know, in that case, uh, set off a red flag. But if they were just doing it based off the browser fingerprint, you could fly under the radar for a very long time. Uh, the NCA estimated that the service hosted 80 million credentials and digital fingerprints stolen from more than 2 million people over the course of its lifetime. Yeah. And the credentials is less impressive because there's lots of places that have billions, but the digital fingerprints of 2 million people is a big freaking deal. It's uh, nuts. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, the U.S. Justice Department confirmed that the FBI had made some arrests of multiple forum users. All of them were based in the United States. That was uh, so typically when we see one of these forums being taken down, it's because they arrested like the leadership of it. And sometimes, you know, the FBI will leave the site up as kind of a honeypot to try and catch users along the way too. this one. It looks like in this operation, which they called Operation Cookie Monster, uh, they just in one fell took down the website uh, and arrested several of the individuals that were participating in this effectively crime ring. Um, now, the NCA also said that Genesis had operated by selling credentials for as little as 70 cents, but also up to hundreds of dollars, depending on the stolen data available. Obviously, you know, some accounts are worth more than others, depending on who they are and what service they're with. Um, but interesting seeing that stat. Uh, if you want to know if you were a potential victim or your information was up for sale on this marketplace, the Netherlands actually put up a website to let you check to see if any credentials uh, relating to your email address had been posted on the site. Uh, it's www.politie.nl. 
slash check your hack. Uh, you can put it in your email address, kind of like have I been and it'll let you know thumbs up or thumbs down via a report sent to your email of if they found any of your credentials in the, uh, the database that was for sale on that site. So first thing I want to hit on, though, this is what the second marketplace to uh, bite the dust in the last two weeks, I think. It was just a couple of weeks ago that Breached went down um, after, or at least the lead administrator of Breached was arrested, which caused the other administrators to pull the site offline. Now we see another dark web marketplace going offline. It definitely feels like international law enforcement is, they're really trying to bring the hurt and stop the revenue streams for a lot of these attackers, which is in line with what we've seen with our interactions with the FBI. And their goal is to basically cut off the supply of money to these organizations. I definitely like them. I, I mean, I, I think going after the money is the right way to catch the criminals. And while this isn't technically the money, these forms, no matter who's breaching what, it's usually forms like these that people are doing the selling and buying of the the exploit kits, the, the finger browser fingerprints, or selling the data later on of their hacks. So making it harder for these, you know, different cyber criminal groups who usually use these forms to pass money and then data to each other harder for them to do that business should help and like you said the fact that they it is unusual that they they uh, arrest so many users of the form not just shut down the form and the leaders so seems like a lot of good news i guess the only downside to researchers is we always like to be on places like uh, previously breached and when we can get on them things like genesis to lurk and to learn ourselves so it does uh, put a little blind spot but i'm sure new ones will pop up that we can lurk in as well yep and i also understand not wanting to leave it up just for the sake of researchers to be able yes. to track data if there is we we, we only want to be in yeah sorry we only want to be in the ones that are active and if they're not active, take, I mean, and if they are active, though, that means money's changing hands. So we'd rather the money stop changing hands. Yep. So another good move by international law enforcement to take down yet another marketplace. But as you said, Corey, just another one's going to pop up again at some point soon. It will. Take its place. That's how this goes. But they are making it more difficult for cyber criminals. And that is exactly what law enforcement what should we be want. doing. But remember, these browser fingerprint things exist, have some sort of EDR, very advanced endpoint malware detection, so that uh, obviously you have, should have all the security controls to prevent it to get to your device in the first place. But make sure to have tools to check for this malware, uh, even without user interaction. The, the idea that they're constantly keeping their fingerprints and your session cookies up to date is pretty scary. Yep, 100%. Uh, so moving on to the next story, last Thursday, Microsoft published a blog post titled Stopping Criminals from Abusing Security Tools, where they detailed a joint venture, including the uh, cybersecurity software company Fortra, who develops the Cobalt Strike penetration testing application, uh, and the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center, or Health ISAC, uh, with their plans to disrupt legacy cracked copies of Cobalt Strike and Microsoft software that have been used by cyber criminals to distribute malware and ransomware. Basically, Microsoft's Digital Crimes Unit, it's historically the piece of the Microsoft organization that works with law enforcement to disrupt cybercrime by taking down command and control infrastructure. If you remember, what, a year and a half, two years ago now with the Emotet takedown, it was largely through court order, Microsoft going and taking down the infrastructure 
on behalf of law enforcement. Uh, in this case, though, uh, they're working with Fortra to remove illegal legacy copies of Cobalt Strike so they can no longer be used by cyber criminals, not just the command and control infrastructure, but attempting to go and clean out like the distribution channels for this cracked software as well, too. Um, they noted that you know they need to get rid of the software because it's being used all over the place. They pointed to 68 ransomware attacks against healthcare industry in more than 19 countries that were uh, executed using these cracked versions of Cobalt Strike. But they did also point out that there's still a legitimate need for the legitimate Fortra tools like Cobalt Strike for like penetration testers. I do want to pause there for a second because like Cobalt Strike is an extremely powerful post-exploitation tool. And there's a reason that cyber criminals are using it because it's really good at what it does. And Corey, this is going to be a, a hardball. Well, like, go for it. Send me the bit hardball. Bit of a loaded question, but should organizations be allowed to develop what is effectively advanced malware and sell it as a, a private offering? Like it's, it feels like a, a weird, I don't know. Like we point the finger at like NSO group selling spyware. Obviously they're selling it to countries that abuse it, but like Fortra creating cobalt strike that is legitimately for a post exploitation beacon. Like it's clearly going to be used by cyber criminals. Yeah, so this is one where a nuance starts to get me. I'm very against Pegasus and actual spyware tools. When you're actually creating a tool to literally put spyware on devices that users don't know about, I, I don't like that. This is an attacker tool, by the way. This could be used to deliver spyware, but it really, I, I feel like things like Metasploit, Core Impact, Cobalt Strike, they're all exploit framework kits. You know, some are better than others. I think part of why you pay for uh, Cobalt Strike is it does have some cool additional or more up-to-date capability than you will have in like the open source version of Metasploit. But I think tools like Metasploit and Core Impact are important to red team penetration testers. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, socks like us that do want to have active red team and want to go beyond just automated vulnerability analysis that says a vulnerability exists in a, a version of software. Sometimes for exploitability to give us a real severity versus this fake severity of, yeah, I found a version that supposedly is not patched. You know, sometimes things have to be turned on for the exploits to work. So it, it's nice to have tools you can use to actually really exploit in legitimate pen test situations. So it, it like you say, it really is a gray area question because I think there's plenty of good legitimate uses for Cobalt Strike and Metasploit. And yet, they are tools that the underground has, even with Metasploit used immediately. I, I feel like we have to keep them legal. Uh, it's a, it's kind of one of the necessary risks. It's like uh, freedom of speech. Uh, I there's there's a fine line between hate speech and freedom of speech, and sometimes I have to let speech that sounds really disgusting exist just for the liberty of everyone to do freedom of speech. So I feel like there's something about exploit frameworks that, while they are dangerous, uh, if in the wrong hands, are very valuable to security validation and penetration testing. And how I get to the feeling very different about compiled spyware that you just, you know, why would spyware be different? Well, you know, I, I guess it's a hard 
thing, but I just feel like that spyware was made for one thing to hide on employees or, or a victim's device without them knowing. Whereas core impact is designed to be used in the open by a team, you know, that knows that they're using this specifically for auditing and validation purposes. So what are your thoughts? Like you say, it's a very great area. So I'm very curious what you think. Uh, you know, I agree, I think, with you for the most part. And part of it boils down to, like, no matter what, we need to be able to test our networks to make sure that they are secure, which means we need to be able to use tools, either like ones that we develop ourselves to use on the network, uh, or in this case, ones that we can purchase or license out in order to use it. And without the ability to do that, if that were to be made illegal, like we would have a leg down on the attackers because we would not be able to test it out, whereas they would be fine to develop whatever the heck they want to go after us. So I'm with you. I think that we need like offensive tools to be protected as well, as long as they're used, you know, legitimately as part of a penetration testing engagement. And maybe that is the key. Maybe you hit the key where it's the use of them that is the elat. It's not the existence of the tool. It's the use of them. You know, so core impact should not be illegal for uh, WatchGuard to buy and to use against WatchGuard's owned items. And the only time we'd use it anywhere else is via a permissions like a professional service. Or we don't do this, by the way. But you know what I mean? It shouldn't be illegal as long as the usage is for use against your own self in testing. But the second it's unauthorized, right? And I guess you could make that argument for spyware too. It might be fine to buy that tool if you send it to to yourself in test environments that the part things that should be illegal is using that tool against anything you don't own any access you are unauthorized to and same with the spyware uh you know actually sending the malicious client to any phone that you for something like there's no reason even my company should be on my personal phone, let alone some random person on the internet. So maybe it's the use of the tools that should have some laws against them, not the tools themselves. I'm going to climb up in my ivory sense. tower for a second and say, I wish that like organizations like Fortra had a little bit better like DRM or digital rights management tools that prevented criminals from obtaining cracked copies of these understanding that there's no such thing as a perfect DRM. And if you can crack it for a game, they can crack it for hacking software easily. But that's the only thing I was going to say, because it's in Fortress like they don't want the piracy, like even before threat actors were using it. I have a feeling there's a lot of young researcher, like young gray hats that aren't really attacking people with it, but want to experience with the tool that might apply. I have a feeling they're already doing all they can to prevent piracy because of their simple business model. It's how they make money. It's just such a cat and mouse game. You know better than anyone else. But I assume the other interesting thing about the story is it's a lot of old versions. I assume all the new versions of Cold Ball Strike have a strong online functionality, meaning you can't really use them in offline mode or it's hard because part of their DRM is probably online checks of the tools. Whereas it might in the past, it's easier to crack games and tools in the past that didn't require this constant repeated kind of, is this really a valid user to a cloud type type check? Uh, instead, it was just local protection. That, that, that seemed so... Yeah, I agree, I agree with you that it'd be nice if we had tools that prevented uh, pirates from pirating this easily. But that is such a long, you've been in the game, Mark, you know how long bad guy or pirates have been able to crack software despite all the new techniques to kind of digitally right manage it. And I guess that's where this blog post comes in then, 
And they're saying, you know, we can't stop them from cracking it, but we can get a court order to go disrupt the actual distribution of those cracked copies of it. Like this all basically boils down to, they said on the 31st of March this year, <clears throat> the uh, U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of New York issued a court order allowing Microsoft, Fortra, and Health ISAC to disrupt the malicious infrastructure used by criminals to facilitate their attacks and distribute this cracked software. So basically it gives them the free reign to go work with ISPs and uh, emergency readiness teams uh, who can assist in taking down this infrastructure offline. So That's I guess awesome. that is like, that is the solution or at least a solution to it. Of, if you can't stop them from doing it, do what you can to prevent yeah, and if they take down and maybe maybe even then one day they'll they'll arrest some of the pirates if they can locate them. Once they arrest the pirate, then they can look into what those computers did with the core impact tool. And if they find they used the tool to do unauthorized access somewhere else, then they could go actually against the usage of the tool. But yeah, well, it's a I hard one. I, from the uh, the documentary that is Pirates of the Caribbean, it's it's very difficult to arrest a pirate. That is, <laughs> they eventually got Mr. Uh, uh, Dread Roberts, Silk Road. Just took a while. <laughs> True. Yeah, no, this is interesting. And and I, I, I think the hardest question you mentioned was, should these tools exist? Because as, as much as I love Metasploit and it's helped us in, from a security defender standpoint many times, I think, it, like half the shellcode I see out there is literally stager shellcode. It's... Bad guys take the good tools and use them for bad purposes quite often. Yep, I'm with you on that. Um, so moving on to the last story for today, this one's going to be a fun one. Uh, so it comes about from an article by Dr. Ken Tyndale, who's the CTO of Canis Automotive Labs. Um, they're an organization that develops CAN, uh, so uh, CAN bus technologies for cars, things like that. And the story starts... In uh, April of 2022, when e his friend Ian Tabor, uh, another automotive security expert, tweeted out a picture of his new Toyota RAV4, which someone had vandalized by pulling the front bumper away a few inches from the driver's side and then used that access to unplug the headlight cables. And so at the time, Ian posted this on Twitter saying, what the heck, this is why we can't have nice things, because he thought it was just vandalism. Uh, three months later, he tweeted out that it happened again. So someone had gone in, pulled the bumper off a little bit, unplugged the headlights. Three days after that tweet, uh, he went outside, outside and found that his car had been stolen. So historically, car theft involving modern vehicles usually has some form of like a relay attack against the smart key. Basically, when you go hit the button in your car to start the car, uh, it will send a wireless signal to the key, says, hey, are you here? And if the key responds, yep, I'm here the car will start. That's overly simplifying it, but that's basically how it works. Yeah. And now, by the way, if I can mention, we we talked about a, a, a updated relay attack back, I think, in our, our Black Hat in DEF CON last year when you and I were sharing some of the talks. Uh, with relay attacks, there's new cryptography being added to kind of uh, avoid or, or new code being added to avoid make relay attacks harder but the one we talked about recently was one where you know if an attack if i remember correctly if the attacker would maybe lock the door twice sometimes people press the key multiple times the fob a few times just i want to make sure it's locked that was enough to defeat some of the relaying protections too but anyways like you say the relay attack where it's just trying to capture the authenticated session and then replay it in some way 
that has been totally the cat and mouse game. Even after they've added replay protections, most of the attacks have been those replay attacks. So yep. it'd be interesting Actually, to so see how this one's different. Minor correction. Uh, so that's replay attacks of you know gathering a someone clicking the button and then replaying it. Oh yeah, a relay is I see the the, the middle relay yeah. instead is so what's supposed capturing to capturing it somewhere else physically inside the car when I hit the button it works and if my key is not inside the car it shouldn't work. But what they found is you can like let's say the key's sitting on my dining room table because it's two o'clock in the morning or something. My car's in the garage. If an attacker comes in and they're able to hit the button on the car and then uh, relay and amplify that signal into the kitchen, they might be able to get the key to then respond and allow the car to start. And some manufacturers have actually put in protections for this in some of the newer Spark keys where they will go to sleep if they're left motionless for a period of time. It's like when you go to bed at night and hang it up on the hook of the wall or put it on a table. If the key hasn't physically moved, it'll stop replying to those types of attacks. So uh, this is relay. And then, like you said, replay attacks are another really popular way to get into cars. Um, but I found, by the way, the reason the car goes to sleep for that relay thing you mentioned is kind of interesting. Uh, I, I I don't know if you know this. I'll send you a video after, Mark. But apparently one of the things in the early cars be, you know, the ECUs that are there apparently were in low power mode. And that's how they the one that's looking for the key fob is always kind of awake enough so that it could see the signal. And you mentioned they go to sleep. One of the reasons they had to add the code for go to sleep is people that were parking these cars in airports. There's a particular airport, like a, you know, something, a radio radar. signal that was broadcast, yeah, radar really heavily. And it was interesting to see that that was enough, even though that wasn't the exact signal the CAN bus and the FOBs were looking for, it was enough to throw some voltage on and, and keep the cars awake more and always checking stuff and uh, eventually draining batteries. So people would park at airports, come back from a long trip and their car would be discharged. They couldn't start it because no battery because before all these sleep modes existed. Yep. So in this case though, uh, the car theft did not involve any of that in fact involves something that's in some cases way more simple but in some cases like really interesting and complex about how they actually exploited it um, so i'm going to try and explain this with my high school physics physics class level of electrical engineering understanding uh, i'm sure my dad will listen to this episode and shoot me a text about all the things that i got wrong on this as we go through it but let's dive in uh, so uh, Ian, the guy whose car got stolen, he popped open his Toyota app on his phone. It's called like MyT or something like that, where you can actually view all of the diagnostic trouble codes that DTCs that get triggered whenever there's a fault in your car. Uh, normally, like older style cars, you've got that ODB onboard diagnostic port where you plug in something, go to the dealership, they charge you $500 for the diagnostic itself, and they tell you, yep, this is broken. More modern cars, you can actually do it yourself through these apps. So he noticed that uh, when he pulled this up on his phone, uh, there were a whole bunch of uh, faults for the headlights, uh, which made sense because the cable was unplugged. But there was also a whole bunch of other faults for other components in the car, too. So modern cars, they've got multiple uh, electronic control units or ECUs to control things like the doors, the lights, the radar, the parking brake and the headlights as well too. And these ECUs communicate with each other over one or more CAN buses, uh, controller area network buses. Um, 
So in the case of the Toyota RAV4, there's actually three separate CAN buses in the car uh, that are separated by this kind of gateway ECU that can relay messages between each of the three buses. That's nice because I feel like early car models had one flat CAN bus. And I think some of the car hacking that's happened, the fact that they're actually separating CAN buses by essentially trust, things that can move the car, things that can start the car versus just external sensors or whatever lights. It's smart that they're segmenting. The only thing I wanted to add that was interesting about CAN bus is they were, it's a, it's a super old standard that was never made just for cars. You can find it in all kinds of weird equipment. And one of the jokes I think in Ken's thing is I, I think satellites use CAN bus for their own, you know, lots of things use this kind of unsophisticated CAN bus network just to share basic communications among OT technology. Uh, so in the case of the RAV4, there's those three, there's a control CAN bus which has the ECUs for headlights, door controls, air conditioning, and other things. Uh, there's the powertrain CAN bus, which has the ECUs for engine control, the hybrid battery, motor control, other things. And then the autonomy CAN bus, which is the ECUs for radar and the cameras, driver assist, that sort of stuff. And those seem like three great things that you'd want to segment if only the gateway did segment. <laughs> anyway, exactly. So uh, this, what ended up happening was... Uh, some attacker was able to get a tool to help do something called CAN injection, which basically works by obtaining access to the CAN bus. Typically, it has to be physical access, like you splice into the wires themselves, uh, and then inject messages into it that are spoofed, pretending to be from something else. It's so like as an example, you could pretend to be the smart key ECU and send a key validated, unlock the immobilizer to the engine control ECU. Uh, which would then allow the engine to start running. Then you could add a, another spoofed message of key valid, unlock the door messages to the door control ECU, which would unlock the doors. And, and to add to this, Mark, like I, I think this is a, a, a perfect example of, well, the car is not a network, but we used to talk about the Tootsie Pop an, uh, analogy where we have this hard and crunchy exterior of a network versus a soft and chewy center. And the point being is the ECUs individually have sometimes have security mechanisms with what they're doing. Specifically, the key fob, when you press it, there's a lot of cryptography to make sure that that key fob belongs to the car, that your press should tell the ECU to unlock. That's the external, let's call it the car's wireless. I know it's not technically wireless, but you know, that's the car's external network. Lots of security technology there. But once, as you say, you get that physical access to the interior CAN bus, all these messages you're talking about that are being sent don't necessarily, in fact, certainly don't in most cars. That's one of the potential fixes. There's no cryptography. It's, once you can get on that network, you can send whatever. And uh, there, there are some rules and other software controls you have to get by. But for the most part, you don't have to worry about you can spoof messages. You don't have to worry about any cryptography or additional hacking. You just, you know, you just have to get past some other mechanism. I, I'm sure you'll talk about in a second. Yeah. And so he thinks he found the actual device that the attackers used in this case. It's actually, it looks like a, it is a JBL speaker, like a little portable speaker where they've kept most of the circuitry, but removed the actual speaker component itself and replaced that empty space then with a custom PCB. 
uh, to be able to interact with the CAN bus in a few different ways. I'd say they replaced it with what looked like a resin blob, right? I mean, yes, it was ultimately <laughs> yes. a custom PCB, but when you popped it open, they, they did a little bit of crappy, easy to bypass physical security of just trying to cover their entire PCB with resin. So it just looked like this resin blob with wires inside what was the normal guts of that speaker. Yep. And the theory was that the reason they put it in a JBL speaker is so like, you know, if a cop stops you or something, you don't have a obvious car hacking kit in your backseat. You've got a JBL speaker hanging out right there. It's nefarious as heck, but I thought that was ingenious. I mean, these bad guys, obviously someone's got caught with a real hacking device and police know to look for them now. So cat and mouse game, it's the story of security life. So then they uh, replaced the USB cord with a something that plugs into USB, but on the end of it, it's basically got two prongs that you can then use to splice into the CAN bus network. And so what happened was the attackers pulled off the front bumper a little bit on the driver's side, unplugged the headlight, uh, its CAN bus cable, and then plugged in this device right instead. Into it. And that got them into that controller, that one-third segmented uh, CAN bus network. Um, then when you hit the the play button on this JBL speaker, it sounds like a burst of around like 20 or second, uh, 20 a second frames of basically a key good signal that the uh, gateway ECU then forwards onto the engine management ECU and ultimately allows you to start the car. Now, the actual smart key ECU, the real one inside the car, uh, in theory should interfere and send out conflicting messages as well, too. And so if that if we're uh, yeah. able to send out conflicting messages, like none of this would work. So the speaker actually has some extra circuitry to interfere with all other ECUs on the CAN bus and prevent them from being able to transmit. Uh, so this is where my high school level knowledge of electrical engineering is going to come in. And I think I got this right. But um, basically, a bit technical, by default, while this CAN bus is idle, it's made up of two wires. There's a CAN H, so high, and a CAN L, so low. And they are both idle at two and a half volts, meaning the voltage difference between the two of them is zero. Uh, this is called the recessive level, uh, which any CAN transceiver on the network will read it as a logical one. So binary one versus a binary zero. Any controller, any CAN controller on the bus can drive the bus to what's called a dominant level where the CAN H wire, the high, will go up to four and a half volts. The CAN L will go down to 0 0.1 volts, so a difference of around 4.4 volts, which any CAN transceiver on the bus will read that as a logical zero. So basically, by changing the voltage, you flip a bit, an analog bit in this case, and if you do that over a certain sample rate, so let's say like five samples a second or eight samples a second, you can transmit data analog uh, in binary um, by basically just changing the voltages on these wires. Ones so and zeros, man. Yep. When they're effectively the same, it's a one. When there's that big difference between them, it's a zero. Uh, so this recessive slash dominant mechanism, it's how CAN bus works. It's also how it figures out which frame should go next. It's a process called arbitration. And it's also how it signals errors on the bus as well, too. So what the attacker's device did was it overrides it by driving both the CAN H and the CAN L to four and a half volts. So they're both high. The difference is zero, which forces it to be in a recessive state. So it's always a logical one in this state. So when another ECU tries to drive the bus to a dominant state, it would be trying to lower the voltage of L 
it isn't able to overcome the attacker's tool so that L will stay at four and a half. So it may be able to move it like a tiny little bit. You can see they hooked it up to an oscilloscope. You can see like tiny little fluctuations in it when another CAN bus is trying to transmit, but it's not enough for that CAN transceiver to register the actual change. So all of the other ECUs on the bus then are basically blocked from sending, uh, setting a dominant state, which causes their CAN controllers to get stuck in this loop of it tries to send a frame, then it gives up, maybe it tries again a little later, all the while throwing out fault codes. And those are the codes that he saw in his application. Now, there's actually a potential problem for this for the attacker uh, when you're blocking all CAN activity like this. Now, so CAN frames have to be acknowledged in the on the bus. So like if you go send the, uh, you know, unlock door or whatever thing, uh, you need to receive an, acknowledge an acknowledgement or else that CAN controller is going to drop the frame and not handle it. It'll treat it like an error. Uh, so that acknowledgement, it's a single one bit field where the transmitter will send a logical one, so the recessive bit, and it expects back a logical zero, the dominant bit. Now again, it's uh, impossible for a single CAN controller to change the voltage enough to get that dominant bit, but if every single receiver tries to do it at the same time, which they do, they're all trying to acknowledge this message, the combined power of all of them is enough to override that mechanism that the attacker tool has and set it to a dominant state, which allows it to be act, which then allows it to inject that frame into the bus and ultimately be relayed on to the uh, engine control unit. That was the kind of interesting, from an electrical engineering standpoint, way where you can jam it, but you jam it in a way where all of them together can still acknowledge it. And so it all still works from the attacker's perspective. It's pretty interesting um, once you wrap your head around exactly what the heck is going on in this thing. So, but but the simplicity uh, of it too is that the main attack is if they can get physical access of the CAN bus, they they know how to defeat these mechanisms right now. So something has to be done on the security wise on the the physical internal CAN bus to protect against these. It's like the vampire attack, right? If you, uh, we might have VPNs and all kinds of things to protect our network, but someone if someone can just come into our front door and put a vampire clip on one of our Ethernet wires, they'll start to be able to do some naughty things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there are actually two proposed fixes that uh, this author uh, proposes to resolve this vulnerability effectively in the cars. Uh, one of them is pretty easy to the point where a simple software update would allow it to work, but it is potentially circumventable if the attackers get more crafty. The other one's a little more difficult, uh, which we'll get into as well, but it could potentially also just be done in software too. So the first fix, it's a quick and dirty, where basically uh, the ECU, so the way that like this CAN bus network works is when you try and transmit, but you can't because it's stuck in this recessive state, there's a dominant to recessive bit error that's normally very rare in normal use of the car. That typically indicates there's like a hardware fault in the, the car. And so he theorized that the gateway ECU, this one that's relaying everything between the networks, can monitor its own CAN controller to see if any of these errors occurred and then follow Fleming's maxim. Basically, once is happenstance, two is coincidence, three times is enemy in action. So he's saying that the gateway can be reprogrammed to only forward these smart key CAN frames if it itself has recently been able to transmit a CAN frame without problems. I thought that was an interesting and kind of novel way to at least prevent this specific attack 
But yeah, sounds like Ken knows the way that the attacker might get past that mechanism too. But it would definitely take the device that exists out there now and make it not work. So I, I thought I. I assume this is what hopefully when we'll talk about whether or not Toyota and others are doing anything about this yet and how Ken was unable to share his research. But yeah, I thought it was very cool. I'm curious to talk about the second because you mentioned it it can only be done. It can be done software, too. And while I agree, he talks about a, a particular software version of something when we get to that one. I thought that all the ECUs had to have keys provision for the second one. So I thought the Correct. second one may be way more involved and require maybe hardware at the very least to whole change the supply chain. Yep. So the second fix he proposed is adopting a zero trust approach to CAN, which is very topical for us uh, traditional IT security practitioners. Basically, it boils down to don't automatically trust messages from other ECUs, but require some proof that they are in fact genuine. And so he proposed a couple solutions that basically just involve, you know, cryptographic signatures, a leading and a trailing frame. It adds a little bit more of a um, uh, overhead to sending a message on the CAN bus, but it can allow you to authenticate a message and prove that it is coming from the legitimate hardware. Now, and this is that, what I was talking about when I talked about the Chewy Center. The fact that any CAN message is just trusted once you're on the CAN network is the issue. And really all they had to bypass was getting the other ECUs to shut up and getting the other, in a particular ECU, to especially shut up. So the problem is no security on any of the internal networking. This essentially is add encryption, add some sort of cryptographical two-way handshake to make sure you're talking to legitimate things and it is a legitimate communication versus just saying yes to everything. Anyways, yeah, so keep going. So you using a, a hardware security module or an HSM, uh, which the automotive industry already has a well-defined standard for. Uh, they call it these secure hardware extensions. And he pointed out that, yes, it should be a hardware security module, but you can even emulate this in software. And he theorized that, in theory, there's enough room in the the storage or whatever, the, the flash of these different ECUs that you could probably, after the fact, update them to put this module in. But as you were hinting at, Corey, you would still have to figure out how to distribute unique keys to every single ECU on the car that is different from every other car so that... An attacker can't just go buy a Toyota and dump the keys and then use that to hack every other Toyota. So it doesn't feel like a something they can do via like a recall and a service appointment very easily. But at least for all new vehicles, it is a potential solution. Yeah, I think this is absolutely the approach new vehicles should. I think beyond vehicles, this is what all hardware needs to start to do is think about trusted boot and zero trust on all internal networks with cryptography. So I, I think it's approach for new vehicles for sure. And like you say, it, hopefully all the ECU's firmware is upgradable. So if they have that RAM, they might be able to put the secret key there. But I feel like that kind of update to every single ECU is not quite as if I, I think it will be new cars, but hopefully the first will help and they'll have additional ideas to protect against the next steps. I do want to talk about that at the end of this, it sounds like Ken has been trying to, like any good vulnerability researcher, they first try to contact the vendor and work with them before they even release details. But it sounds like he tried for quite a while and had no response. And part of why he's releasing this is because he's not getting response. And he also doesn't think it's a big, like a... Uh, 
The reason researchers don't want to fully disclose until vendors respond is typically because a good researcher wants to protect them. But even if the, the, the vendor isn't responding, this isn't really a full disclosure in his opinion, because this is it's not like it's zero day anymore. Bad guys have been using it forever. So it's he called it a if, negative 365 day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's not like he's giving up. He did a lot in his his write up to actually not go into enough detail about certain things about the fix so that the attackers could learn from what he's suggesting or, or that external people could learn how this attack technically worked in all the ways. So he's obviously to me a white hat, but I kind of agreed with him. It's kind of crappy that he hasn't found a good way to report this. Uh, he's following what's typical for full disclosure, responsible disclosure practices for software companies. But it seems like car companies really need to realize now that they are software. They, they need a P-cert. They need some sort of good, you know, good, good setup and process to take in vulnerabilities when people like this researcher are trying to help them protect their own devices. Yeah, he blamed it on Toyota being a, a massive company, which they are. They are an absolutely yeah. massive company. And sometimes that makes it difficult to get to the right person within an organization that understands what you're trying to report. But I do, I would argue that, like you just said, like they need to understand they are a software company and they need a easy to use process. Like Microsoft is a massive company, but you can still reach their security team to report a vulnerability pretty easily if you need to. If I were to put it a different way, too, I would say back when we first saw the Jeep hacks with Charlie Vlas or I'm sorry, Charlie Miller and Chris Vlasek, I would have forgiven Toyota for not having or, or any other. By the way, this doesn't just apply to Toyota. This, this hack probably works against other cars. They just tested against the RAV4. And this is true of all automotive companies. But I probably would have kind of forgiven them for not having a, a mature responsible disclosure process because it was new to them but this comes like a decade past that you know car hacking has been a thing forever so not only do car manufacturers need to have one i'm kind of surprised how hard it was to it nowadays it, it not surprised 10 years ago but nowadays every car company knows specifically they've been working on updating their security of their fobs because they know people are stealing cars via them so the fact that they don't have a disclosure process that's easy right now is kind of a bummer in my opinion yep i'm with you on that one and man i'm not looking forward to the uh the tiktok challenge of stealing a toyota car now on top of all the kia oh, ones God. that have been or hyundai that have been going around forever apparently they ate cinnamon they almost killed himself and now they're going to be criminals and steal cars come on tiktok challenges stick with the fun dances <laughs> Sage advice. By the way, if you check out the video, or I'm sorry, the article from this guy, he does have a video, I, not his own, but apparently this type of car theft, you know, after his friend happened to his friend and he researched it, just YouTube searches can bring up people specifically stealing RAV4s and going straight for that front left bumper and the headlight. So there's a video you can watch on that. He has some very cool videos that have quizzes on the CAN bus where if you want to learn more about the, the electronics and the, the logic and the electronical engineering Mark was talking about that is in these CAN buses. Uh, they have neat demo environments where they simulate messages and teach you about how the CAN bus reacts with monitoring tools. So I thought the videos included in his page were pretty cool. Yep, agreed. Uh, we'll make sure we get that linked in the show notes for this one as well, too, because it is a very interesting article with lots of good 
uh, images from like the oscilloscope that kind of help understand a little bit more what's going on within that CAN bus. Yep. Um, but yeah, man, no car is safe, apparently. Technology is wonderful, but it's uh, it's cool to just walk up your car, open the door and press a button because you have a fob in your pocket. But man, it, if you don't do it right, it makes it easy for the criminals. And it turns out it's very hard to do it right. Yeah. I think I'm going to go change my locks in my house to all electronic because I'm sure that's safe, right? Make sure you get the ones advertised as unhackable. <laughs> hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episodes, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Dogecoin, I mean, Twitter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the443podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week. I wonder if Cookie Monster prefers chocolate chip or web cookies. I wonder what web cookies taste like.